1: President and Founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us in today's teleconference. The topic, of course, is Investigations of U.S. Employers by Federal Agencies. I'm honored and delighted to introduce to you by phone my two brilliant, smart, amazing, knowledgeable attorneys of the Murthy Law Firm, Alyssa Klein and Brian Green. Both of them have been working here for several years they are superstars among the lawyers, and they know the issue about federal agencies and investigations of employers in the immigration law context. I'm sure those of you who've unfortunately had the opportunity to have your the, the, your office doors knocked on have probably already consulted or spoken with Brian Green over the years. So today's overview, we're going to talk about the unfortunate robust funding of the FDNS investigations. And uh, unfortunately, all the money that you all are using, um, are filing with your H-1 petitions, et cetera, are being used to hire fraud detection and national security investigators. And also, um, they tend to act on information that sometimes can be really, really old Uh, And there's a lot of cooperation among the different agencies, which includes the U.S. Department of Labor, the Immigration Customs Enforcement, and the FDNS, or Fraud Detection and National Security, which is part of USCIS, where they have the right to just stop by and visit your office without a warrant and could end up with criminal investigations. But enough of that broad overview. Let me ask Brian to just share some of the latest trends in immigration enforcement. Brian, the floor is yours.
2: Thank you, Sheila. You know, one of the recent trends has been this increase that you talked about with the funding and FDNS activities, but it actually was expressed recently in a uh, USCS Administrative Appeals Office decision in a matter of Simeo Solutions LLC. And what happened there is that the California Service Center apparently was looking for a case to refer up to the AAO office, and they chose one where an IT consulting company had uh, filed for an in-house position and moved the worker afterwards. And they nested an investigation, and when they found the worker wasn't at the location, they issued a notice of intent to revoke a NOR, and. Despite revoking the case, they certified it to the appeals office, and we get this matter of Simio decision which changes. And I'm sure you've heard about it. We had a, re- a telecast on it last month. We have an article about it on the murthy.com website. It's changed the LCA update practice where now you have to have admitted H-1B petitions, but that's a product of the investigations. They're finding these problems and are acting on them.
0: Right. It's important to point out, you know, as mentioned earlier, you know, Sheila, that FDNS and the Department of Labor, they don't need subpoenas to inquire about H-1B workers, work locations, pay, who controls their work proper notification for LCA's or or other terms of of employment. And actually, given the success that this well-funded FDNS site visit program has had, employers should continue to expect this to expand. We've already heard about it expanding to L1s. Um, It could possibly be pre-adjudication or pre-approval as opposed to post-approval, whereas right now we're seeing site visits for H-1Bs only occur after the case itself is approved. And it seems that there's perhaps a window of time after approval where these site visits occur um, You know during the validity period. But again, things can take a long time. You may not even find out that someone came and knocked at your door or your employee's door until some years later even.
2: And another scary thing we've seen, Sheila, is that if someone is at the wrong location, it's not, it doesn't match their LCA work or location. If they were then to travel overseas, they're getting married, there's you know a major family event, they go back to India or their home country, they may go to the consul and apply for a H1B visa and be told you have a fraud finding. And that fraud finding could have been entered a year or two earlier based on an FDS, FDNS site visit or possibly a Department of State um, inquiry about the H-1B uh, petition. So we're finding when people are leaving the country, they're not getting back in. Then we're trying to do liaison work. We're filing lawsuits over these fraud findings, which have been successful. But it's, it's, a, it's a problem that may be hidden until something triggers it, which could be – you know, a, a nor being issued or traveling overseas.
1: So let me, I know you said something very briefly and sort of passing, but I want to, if I can just put, grab that, which is where you said you, have you a multi-law firm you're saying has filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, CIS, yes. for a fraud hit, a 212A6C fraud hit.
2: right. We've we've been successful in filing lawsuits where there are unexplained 212A6C fraud where there was no NOR issue, there was no chance or opportunity to respond to the allegation. We'll file a, a lawsuit. You know, an APA lawsuit challenging it in federal court, and it has worked where the fraud has been removed afterwards. So it's been successful.
1: And it, just to be clear, APA is the Administrative Procedures Act. So, so the reason being that you can't just put fraud under my name without giving me an opportunity to try to rebut or prove to right. you why you might be wrong. Or
2: it may be that the employer filed an HMB petition, but they're giving fraud hit to the individual, and the individual didn't file an HMB. They didn't file an LCA. So if there's nothing in there like a fraudulent resume or something that came from the worker, you shouldn't have a fraud against that person. That's
1: pretty impressive. That's amazing. Well, in addition to all of this annoying and scary stuff, unfortunately, we're hearing more and more about the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations Involvement. What, is the, what 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 exactly is going on? Alyssa, would you like to share something? Yeah, absolutely. So even though in
0: an investigation process, employers may be cooperating or dealing directly with FDNS, Department of Labor, or ICE, they may not really be the only people in the picture. The FBI has become more visible in investigations of H-1B employers as more indictments and criminal prosecutions on these issues have gone public. Um, so the the individual uh, agencies that you're actually dealing with FDNS, DOL um, these investigators can be working directly with the FBI agents and by doing so the FBI and IRS and these investigators from other agencies can collect evidence to support criminal charges relating to immigration fraud visa fraud mail fraud Wire fraud, tax fraud, etc.
1: That sounds like it's very broad and all-encompassing. So, also the other thing that you just mentioned a few minutes ago, Brian, was the issue of the NOAR, or the Notice of Intentions to Revoke or Intent to Revoke, issued by USCIS. Can you explain a little bit what exactly is going on and how an employer can try to try to, I guess, get around some of these issues?
2: Yeah, I think that when we, we've always known about NORS and they've been a tool USCS uses, but it seems that they've been issuing a lot more NORS after the FDNS site visit program got going. And what they're doing is they may approve the H1B petition based on what you've put forward in it. But then afterwards, if they see that something has changed, they'll, they'll say, hey, we don't believe you anymore. You know, here's a discrepancy we found. We went to location A and your worker was working from home that day. But they really are there, you know, 80% of the time. They they may have USCS issue a NOR and then you have to respond and defend it or you lose the approval of that case. One thing you're finding, we're finding is that it may be that NORs are being issued a year or two later. So they may do a site visit two or three months after the HMB is approved, but then the NOR comes out a year later. and At that point, that project might be winding down. So it may be kind of hard to prove at that point.
1: And one of the major reasons why there are notice of intentions to revoke tend to be the issue of location. Uh, so uh, NORs will mention that the USCIS had conducted, for example, a site visit and the H-1B employee was not working at that location and nobody there had any knowledge of that particular person, that worker by name, or that the employee stated that that person now works at a different or new work site location. And the case that that Brian just mentioned, the matter of Simeo Solutions, prior to that case, the employers, as employers, you know, you often had the practice of simply filing uh, one H-1 petition initially, and then just doing what you called an LCA update. So you wouldn't have to incur the government filing fees and processing fees and legal fees, etc. with the LCA update. Well, we now know that's obviously no longer possible. Uh, so the way the USCIS FDNS agents would go is that they only had the one work location because the LCA was only filed with the U.S. Department of Labor and not with the USCIS. So they only went to the first work location or the work location originally mentioned on the H-1 petition. And so there's no follow-up place for them to look at um, even years later when the NOIR is issued. Um, Also there's the issue about if the first work location was given to INS was for example the headquarters of the company or an existing client project but then the H-1 worker either never worked in either one of those two locations, the USCIS may actually determine that there was fraud because the employer said something to get the approval of the petition and never really followed through. But I understand from the employer's point of view, it's difficult to predict six months in advance where exactly your employee may be working or located And hence the big risk is that the USCIS could start denying extensions of status or approving these petitions only for consular processing at the next extension based on the fact that they believe that the employee had violated status by not working in the specific location mentioned on the petition. So, Alyssa, let me come to you now. The other issue besides location for issuances of NORS tend to be not performing the exact job duties or in the capacities, you know, in the in the capacity as specified on the H-1 petition. Can you explain a little bit about that? Right. So as we,
0: as you said, Sheila, you know, these site visits that result in the notices of intent to revoke, are, is essentially USCIS their FDNS unit trying to verify that the job described as you talked about location, is actually being done by the worker as described in the petition. So you may get a, a notice of intent to revoke that makes a reference to the individual not being employed in the capacity specified in the petition. Um, one example might be if you list a headquarters location as the work site, there's a site visit, but maybe they only find a CEO there or it's a shared office space. The norm might, might be issued and ask for all kinds of information about the company, workers, work locations, Uh, about viability of the business itself, lease, floor plan, etc., to show that this employee is actually doing the job described and that you're able to support the person in that role doing the job described. Um, Again, this happens a lot in the scenario when you first file for something listing headquarters location, and then you subsequently move the individual to a later location. So if you've moved that individual to another location, USCIS can't locate them, and they can't verify that they're being employed in the same capacity as specified in the petition. Um, Another way that this might come up in terms of not being employed in the same capacity on the petition is if perhaps um, the an employer uses one occupation or job for every H-1B consultant. So everyone is a programmer analyst or everyone is a systems analyst. And in reality, maybe they're not. Maybe they're doing slightly different jobs. And um, when... USAS is given information about what they're doing, it's not lining up with the petition.
1: Okay, thanks, Alyssa. Brian, if we can come to you with the next hot topic or the next reason, which is the issue of control, does the H-1B employer really control all of the details for the H-1 employee? So what does this require from an employer?
2: It requires that you react to the the Newfeld memo, which we've been talking about for the last five years, but it, it's still uh, a problem for employers. You have to show that you have control of the worker on a day to day basis, as you said. And if you have one layer between you and the end client, not so rough, but if you have more than one layer, it obviously gets harder and harder. So if USCIS, um, finds out that there is a layer that wasn't disclosed, if they do a site visit and see that someone else is controlling the worker, or maybe the end client says, oh yes, you know, we do um, control this worker, and that conflicts with what you said in your petition, they may issue uh, another way we've seen this come up, just not just a site visit, is FDNS is um, looking through the filings. And if, if they, say, have a big telecom commu- company, a big bank, if they see this bank always uses one contract and that contract says that they are going to control the worker on site, even if you didn't give them a copy, they may say, your worker is working at Bank X we know that they have these contracts, please give us a copy of the contract and show us that it doesn't say this paragraph about control. And we've, we've seen where that's a problem for some employers. They can't get that altered contract because that major bank doesn't want to change that. They may also, if you don't have any verification at all from the end client, it's common for USAS to say, prove that you have control of the worker, prove that this major electric company is not going to be controlling the worker or if there is some verification from the end client but it doesn't cover everything, you may get a a smaller or more narrow nor questioning the control issue there.
1: Hmm. That is all pretty scary because a lot of this is outside the control of H-1B consulting companies or employers and I guess the one way is to make sure that the big companies who are now aware, the larger players, that their contracts maybe should say, in addition to us, the H-1B employer always retains the right to control the work and other details about the employment, but easier said than done because the larger players sometimes don't think or care about H-1B related or immigration related issues because they believe they have enough clout and power to call the shots. So the next thing that we uh, I, I just want to check with either one of you, if you think there are any other issues from the NOARs, Notice of Intentions Intends to Revoke, that seem to come either from the FDNS, from the Department of Labor or from the consular officer Um Investigating or based on petition returns?
0: No, absolutely. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the FDNS visits and the NORS, but really issues can come up even if you don't get that knock at the door. Um, in, if you have an employer filing an H 1B petition for one work location, be it headquarters or client A, for example, and then subsequently the employee has to work at a different location or a different client site, if that worker, if that H-1B employee then leaves the U.S. and has to apply for a visa, um, that information has to be disclosed at the time of the interview. Okay.
2: Yeah, and she I'll add to that that if the is if the going overseas and they're going to be applying for a H-1B visa, They have to be truthful, because if the employer has moved them and hasn't done an amended HMB, which we now know is going to be required a lot more often, if they don't... Tell the truth at the interview, and they tell the consul officer, I'm really working at end client A, but they've not been working there. They're risking having a 212A6C fraud finding, which we discussed earlier, made against them. And also, if the, the consul officer has the ability to ask questions or even demand documents, and they'll issue a 221G and say, Give me these documents. And if something conflicts in the documents versus what was filed in the H 1B petition, we have what's called the, the PIMS. Petition Information Management System. They can check the HMB that was filed. If there's a discrepancy, they're going to probably send it back to USAS and say, "Hey, here's a memo. There are some discrepancies that came up during the interview. Look and see if you want to revoke this." So a NOR gets issued again. Um, but Very that's
0: good. so to take it one step further, Brian. You know, in this case, the NOR in this situation is issued from the visit to the consulate not from the site visit. So you'll still see language in the Notice of Intent to Revoke um, citing to the specific instance or situation which prompted the NOR to be issued. So, for example, um, in this scenario, a NOOR could say that the beneficiary or the employee appeared for his or her interview at, at a specific U.S. consulate, and then they will compare What exactly you were talking about, Brian, which is the petition itself that was filed, which was reviewed in the PIMS database, um, against what the information against the information being provided by the actual applicant at the time of the interview. And then they are referring that to USCIS. USAS, USAS mm-hmm. issues the Notice of Intent to Revoke. This is what the Notice of Re- Intent Revoke is telling um, the employer about their employee and their interview. And they're making the conclusion that it seems like a material change has occurred between the facts presented and what was applied for. And because of this, the case could be revoked. And it
2: yeah. could take a long time, Sheila. It could take a year yeah. for that process. two
1: years, three years. Sometimes we've yeah. seen the H-1, the final decision to reaffirm the approval when there's like either after the the full mm-hmm. three years are over or when there's like three months left.
2: And the worker's been stuck in India the and whole And the time. person's been stuck
1: abroad or not been able to join that particular employer at any rate. So there's another issue, which is sometimes the Department of Labor and the FDNS refer cases to each other. So the issue is that when the H-1 employer signs the LCA, they're agreeing to cooperate with the U.S. Department of Labor in a WHD or Wage and Hour Division investigation without the need for the DOL WHD to obtain an administrative or judicial subpoena. So you might not know this, but that's exactly what you agreed to when you signed that LCA as the H1B employer or the employer's representative. So the department of labor now has a memorandum of understanding with a different federal, with different federal agencies and they're allowed to share the information that they collect during the WHD, the wage and Hour division investigations with, both the USCIS and its FDNS officers, with the FBI officers, and even with local, state, or federal prosecutors. So, Alyssa or Brian, Brian can you share with us an example or two of situations where the DOL investigation can, scary as it is, turn criminal?
2: I think one unfortunately it's somewhat common um, fact pattern is where someone at the company whether it's in the US if there's a you know, an office in India that's working with the the, the the US-based company if there's any forging of signatures on documents whether they're submitted to USAS whether it's IRS documents that were filed and sometimes it even happens that when the Department of Labor comes in and does an investigation there are documents that are given over to the Department of Labor investigator that are either backdated that have uh, things that are uh, written over top of them. And if there's some fraud going on there, Wage Hour Division has the opportunity to refer it to a number of the different agencies you just talked about. They can refer it to USCIS and the FDNS uh, Directorate, or they can refer it to ICE, the Immigration's Customs Enforcement, and they have the prosecutorial power there at the federal level. They can go, and I've seen it myself, where companies are referred to a local prosecutor. So if this happens to be in Long Island or in Connecticut, they can go to a local county prosecutor and say, hey, we think this forgery happened here in your jurisdiction. Would you please investigate this? Or they could go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and then you're getting it's getting more serious as you go up the ladder. But the U.S. Attorney's Office can work with the FBI, and they can have a grand jury indictment. And then they can always refer it to the IRS, and they have their own investigators and prosecutors, and they can investigate and prosecute for tax fraud.
1: Wow, all this is really, really scary. Are there times when the ICE and the U.S. Department of Labor work together during like the initial investigation stage, for example? And is this something to be concerned about? And before maybe, Alyssa, I'll have you answer this question. But before I do that, uh, Brian, what you just mentioned was a little bit scary because you're saying that they can do all of this when there is based on what they call forgery. But what if I, you've given me permission, for example, you, you, to sign your name because you're working in the same office and someone does it? The way to do it is, if you're signing for me, you can't sign as Sheila Murthy. You have to sign as Brian Green, and hopefully you have some kind of a limited power of attorney or a general power of attorney to sign my behalf. And I think people are used to, because in other countries and cultures, sometimes people may just sign for another person, Well, that's only possible if you sign your name, not that person's name. That's where the potential risk of forgery comes in.
2: It also can be, uh, we've seen fake payroll before. We've Mm -hmm. seen where they run the payroll, the company may issue a paycheck, and there may be money actually transferred to a bank, but then the worker gives the money back. Um, If these things are are turned over to CIS in in a request for extension of status, they're given to Department of Labor saying, hey, we paid this worker, there's no back wages owed, but if that money wasn't transferred or if it was given back, they may say it's fraudulent, and then you start talking about fraudulent pay, not paying the right taxes the IRS. So it okay. can be
1: complicated. Sounds great. So, sorry, Alyssa, can you jump back? Yeah, no, absolutely. To get um,
0: back to your question, yes. Uh, ICE and DOL can work together during the initial investigation stage. One example might be of a DOL investigator teaming up with an ICE agent to investigate an H-1B employer, and they uncover evidence that the company has taken money from applicants to file H-1B petitions for them. And then when the H-1B workers gets paid after their petition approval or visa issuance, then they pay back the money to the employer. So this is what Brian was just talking about, which is running payroll. Um, And then on top of it, because money is being deducted from the wages, the employer is now also not complying with the required potentially wage, not potentially complying. not complying with the required wage listed on the LCA and in the petition. Um, so with respect to running payroll, as again, as Brian pointed out, it is a form of tax fraud. Uh, it's a violation of several programs. And in addition to a company facing... You know, you know, potentially facing the same four scenarios that Brian list, listed above in terms of referral of the matter. It's also important to keep in mind that if fake payroll documents or letters with inaccurate salary information were given to USCIS or U.S. consular offers, separate fraud investigations and prosecutions can occur. All
1: well, that sounds really scary because a lot of companies, I think, think, well, it's not a big deal. It may just be what they consider a little white lie. But as we tell people all the time, and I'm sure those of you who've attended these uh, teleconferences before know that you are signing all of these documents, you or your age, whoever your HR person is signing these documents under penalty of perjury, which is a separate federal criminal offense. So don't take your obligations lightly. And I tell people no employee, nobody, even your own company that you started isn't worth for you to go to jail or, or be in a state of panic. It's just not worth, life isn't worth it that way. Can we jump to the FDNS, and where would an FDNS investigation, uh, when and where would it lead to a criminal investigation or prosecution, and what options does FDNS have in a situation like this, Brian?
2: If FDNS finds that there are, say, fake end-client documents or mid-vendor documents, they may find that where a company has filed for a project, maybe they said they can put 20 workers at one project, they may go to the end client and say, hey, we have these 20 letters, can you verify that you signed all 20? And we've seen where the end client will say, oh, I signed for these six letters, this is my signature, but these other 14, I didn't sign those. So what FDNS can do is they can then write up a memo saying we found an instance of fraud or indications of fraud, and then they can refer that to the FBI, they refer it to other federal investigators or other criminal investigators and say, we have a a fraud scheme here, do you want to go and look at this further? and they can go ahead and they can issue, they can be secretly working behind the scenes, as as Alyssa said with the Department of Labor, they can work behind the scenes but ask you directly for information. So they issue a nor. they say, hey, we have this instance, uh, we think it's fraud, explain. And you're trying to protect the HMB approval, you're giving documents, but in the meantime, they're collecting and making a bigger folder on the company and they can share that. So those statements you're making, the evidence you're giving, either could make your situation worse, or maybe you could explain it and make it a little bit better. But they can refer the situation to ICE, because ICE has criminal investigation power, and they can try to put any of the workers involved into removal proceedings. We used to call it deportation proceedings. And if they're in the U.S. and there was a a fraudulent end-client letter, say, given to the U.S. Department of State, that makes it even worse. So... What they can do is they can go to the worker, they can say, we're going to deport you if you don't cooperate with us against the company. And then the worker might be able to ask for an S visa, a U visa as a victim of of a crime, uh, maybe qualify for U visas. But the, the ICE or the government may try to use those workers and scare them and get them to cooperate and give testimony against the company in a criminal uh, prosecution. They can also, again, go back to the local or state prosecutors, and they can go to the FBI or the U.S. Attorney's Office and try to have an indictment. And they often try to indict 10 people at once and have them all start to give testimony against each other because it's very easy. They can have the people kind of turn against themselves and makes it— And
1: maybe promise deals to some saying, if you squeal against your employer, I'll, you know, let you off the hook, etc., to try to tempt people to squeal and sometimes share information that they might not have been so willing or easy to— It's
2: efficient for them as a government to, to do that, and it costs less money for them.
1: Yeah, it's all it's all scary. So we're going to try to jump soon, too. But the last point I want to touch before we actually talk about how can we deal with as employers or avoid investigations altogether. But the last point we want to quickly touch upon is the uh, Department of State referrals, where after the H-1B or H-4 visa interview, the U.S. Department of State or the consular officer conducting the interview can can. and, And I think both Brian and Alyssa touched upon this can. Lead, re, uh, lead to referrals of questions or concerns to both the U.S. Department of Labor and FDNS investigators. They often, the consular officer could issue a 221G request, uh, sometimes that are expansive, asking for a whole bunch of listing of all of the h one m workers for the particular employer, current work location, rate of pay, job title, etc. Or the consular officer can ask for details of the H-1B workers' current project and then have the investigator Contact the end client to verify those details, including who is controlling that particular H-1 worker's day-to-day duties. Or the consular officers may notice that an employee or in the case of an H-4 visa applicant, the, which, which is usually the spouse or a minor child, generally the spouse, um, that the employee has been benched because their payroll or their, tax, their pay records don't show payment of the wages as required by law or that they were grossly or sometimes marginally underpaid or are working in a location which was nowhere mentioned or listed on the petition, which is on file with the USCIS. So then they would obviously deny the request for the visa and then they refer the case back to the U.S., to either USCIS or, you know, whatever, to Department of Labor for an investigation and possible revocation that we talked about the Noirs. So if I can have both Brian and Elissa talk a little bit about how do we now as employers, how can the employers who are on this conference call deal with such situations to or even hopefully avoid such investigations?
2: I think you need to be proactive. I think you have to a- accept the idea that there's a lot of government agencies that have the ability to look at your HMB filings and try to verify that everything inside the filing is true and accurate. Um, if you have U.S. attorneys looking, or assistant U.S. attorneys looking at your filings, you want to make sure that you can back up every statement that's in them and that there's no generalities, or if you're using the same job description for 100 workers and they're working at Twenty different end clients. You you may not understand how they're doing that job, and they might claim afterwards that you are just filing this to get it approved. You weren't actually saying what the real job was. And I think another thing you need to be careful about is if you have a back office in India that's working with your U.S. operation. I would recommend that you not have a financial incentive for the workers there that's tied to the HMB program. So just as example, if you have people doing HR for you or, or HMB um, recruitment. In India, if you give them an incentive that's based on how many H-1Bs get approved or picked in a cap year, you may be giving someone um, a a financial um, interest in creating fraudulent documents, And, and we have seen that before.
0: So, in addition to making sure everything is good at the beginning, uh, from the start, uh, it's important to you know stay on top of the petitions and your employees as time progresses through the validity period. So, for example, if you're an IT consulting company, do file those amended H one B petitions, you know, at the time that that, that employee is moving. Uh, you know, I. We all understand that, you know, things move quickly in IT consulting and sometimes things happen very fast, but um, if possible, file the amended petition before a move takes place um, or as soon as possible. Uh, The requirement is that USCIS is notified immediately of any material change and which may be a new end client, a new work location. Um, also, from a practical point of view, once you file the amendment petition, at least you have it on record where that person is going to be. So if uh, FDNS is going to go out and do a site visit, they actually have that new form I-129 on record saying where that person is.
2: I would add, Sheila, it's important to not accept money from any of your H&B workers. In the past, that has been a practice, and I think the Department of Labor has been cracking down on it a lot more the last five or six years. But if you were to loan money to an H&B worker, say it's in advance, they've come here for the first time, or they're just finishing up their OPT, it's good to have, talk to an attorney first, make sure that you know what you're doing, but if you have that repaid, do it as a line item on the pay stubs and make it very clear what the deduction's for. Otherwise, if there's deductions that aren't explained, it may, as, as Alyssa said earlier, it may affect whether the Department of Labor can verify you've been paying the required wage. Um, and just and in general, having H-1Bs on payroll as early as possible is important. You can't have the worker delayed on payroll because they don't have a social security number or because they're interviewing for end-client projects. They call this um, pre-posting benching or, or early benching. If you don't have someone on the payroll within the first month or six weeks, you're going to definitely have a problem with Department of Labor and whether or not You may be starting off with a violation at the beginning of their employment.
0: And then to sort of wrap it all up, at, at the end of an employment relationship, Um, you know, if that employment is going to end prior to the end date of the H-1B petition, it's really important that as an employer, a bona fide termination is is completed. Um, And and that's because, you know, for whatever reason the employment ends, um, if the petition is otherwise still valid, it could expose the employer to large back wage obligations and workers know that they can complain to the Department of Labor. So there may be a risk there that, you know, if an employee leaves, um, that they contact DOL after they leave to address perhaps a gap of time with no pay stub, or you know trying to go ahead and get pay for they for what they feel they were owed, um, and they may be doing this also to show that they were in status or to extend their status.
1: Yeah, I mean, so you can see all of these are fabulous, simple ideas and solutions. But like most things in life, it's easier said than done because it's always tempting to say, oh, I'm really rushing for time or I'm filing this petition six months before. Let me just put throw down the headquarters work location. Let me just sign these documents because I need to file it on April 1st. And the uh, company president is traveling Hopefully you've thought of all of these issues because we know a year in advance, unfortunately, that most likely the quota, H1 cap quota, is going to be used up in the first few days in April, the first few working days, first five working days as allowed under regulation. So... It's very, very important for us to take care of dotting the I's, crossing the T's, making sure that you as employers are being extra cautious and careful not to get burnt for yourself, for your employees, uh, and for the future of your business. And maybe this was your retirement plan, so you don't want to mess up your life and go to jail at the end of the day. Uh, We are always very conscientious about trying to stick with the entire teleconference between 30 and 45 minutes, and I see we're doing great on time. We have just a couple of minutes to wrap up, but I just want to take this opportunity again to thank each of you for participating in today's teleconference call about employer investigations by federal agencies and on behalf of Alyssa klein brian green myself sheila murthy and the entire Murthy law firm family we thank you for joining us today we hope we've shed some light and we didn't mean to scare you we just are sharing statistics examples and cases to help you to plan and to think better and hopefully in the long run it will help you and your business to become far more successful and of course if any of you ever want to work with the world's best immigration law firm you know where to get us on Multi.com, your resource for cutting edge, valuable, free, useful information with the latest articles, cases, and other details. And of course, these free teleconference, which we invite you to share with everybody you know. Thank you and have a wonderful day and happy summer.